My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. Beloved, we're going to sing after the message these words. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. When darkness seems to hide his face, I rest on his unchanging grace. In every high and stormy gale, my anchor holds within the veil. On Christ the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. All other ground is sinking sand. Rich words, true words, accurate words that flow directly from the passage God has before us here this morning. Hebrews chapter 6, verses 13 through 20. In this magnificent book of Hebrews, it is a book, it's one of the 66 books of the Bible, one of the 27 of the New Testament. But this book is very unique. It's an epistle, it's a letter, but it is a unique letter. It is a unique epistle. It is a sermonic epistle. It's very clear that the author, who you may have heard me refer to as author, pastor, preacher, whom I can't wait to meet in heaven, fascinating man. We don't know whom he uh, is or was or who he is or was, but It is very clear he was a pastor at heart, very clear that he was a preacher, and the whole letter carries a weight of a sermon. And our passage here is a sub-sermon within this sermonic epistle. And what we will see here as we go through these eight verses is really different elements from a sermon. We'll encounter a historical illustration, then a supernatural exposition, And then a personal application in this magnificent passage that God has for us by way of encouragement. All driving home the hope, the steadfast anchor of our soul, which is hope. The hope in Christ. The hope we have in the promise of God, in the word of God. Beloved, please follow as I read Hebrews chapter 6, beginning in verse 13. For when God made the promise to Abraham, since he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself, saying, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply you. And thus, having patiently waited, he obtained the promise. For men swear by one greater than themselves and with them an oath given as a confirmation is an end of every dispute. In the same way, God desiring even more to show to the heirs of the promise the unchangeableness of his purpose interposed with an oath. In order that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we may have strong encouragement. We who have fled for refuge, laying hold of the hope set before us. This hope we have is an anchor of the soul, a hope both sure and steadfast, and one which enters within the veil, where Jesus has entered as a forerunner for us, having become a high priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. Beloved, this is the word of God read in your hearing. Please attend to it as such. Again, the three elements, components of this divine sermon is a historical illustration, a supernatural exposition, and a personal application. And I think the intent flows directly from the exhortation that we just left in verse 12, that we would not be sluggish in our treatment, in our handling of 
the gospel, in our treatment of the word of God, that we would not drift away from that which we have heard from God in his word, but rather we would imitate and follow by way of example those who have inherited the promises of God by faith and patience, namely the man Abraham, which takes us to the first part here, the historical illustration in verses 13 and 14. And simply put, Abraham, father Abraham. He is the father, the ethnic genetic father of the nation of Israel. And we know from God's word in Romans that he is a spiritual father of us as well. Abraham is an example par excellence of one who has inherited the promise of God by faith and patience. Look at verse 13. He says, for, he writes, For when God made the promise to Abraham, since he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself, saying, I will surely bless you, and I will surely multiply you. Literally, the original Greek says, blessing I will bless you, multiplying I will multiply you. It's the Greek version, the Septuagint version of the Hebrew emphatic, the, great, the greatest intensity that you could use in Hebrew to drive home a point was to use this infinitive absolute of taking, basically saying, blessing I will bless you, multiplying I will multiply you. Uh, we encountered this back, for example, in Genesis 2.17 on the negative side when God told Adam and Eve, in the day you eat of the f- fruit, of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will surely die. Literally, dying you will die, this intense form. But here, it's not by way of judgment, it's by way of exhortation, of encouragement, and of a promised blessing that God gave to Abraham back in Genesis chapter 22. Here in Hebrews, this is the first appearance of the word bless. The the Greek word appears seven times. This is the first two of seven times. It only appears once in the English translation we have here. But it's the first two, or first one, depending on your language, of the appearance of the word bless in Hebrews. What's interesting, the other five appearances of the word bless is where men are blessing other men. Where Melchizedek, we'll see in chapter 7, bless. Abraham and then Isaac blesses Jacob and Esau and then Jacob blesses the sons of Joseph but here it is God who is blessing Abraham and to make sure we understand this let's turn back to Genesis chapter 22 you may be very familiar with this chapter you may not be familiar. If this is the first time you've heard this, that's good. We're glad that you're hearing the word of God. But in Genesis 22, verse 1, we read these words. Now it came about after these things that God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham. And he said, here I am. This testing that we see here, this is proving the quality of someone or something, very often through adversity or hardship. And beloved, that is what we see in the case of the life of Abraham. This is what we see throughout the Bible in the New Testament and what we experience in our life as well. Our faith and our mettle is tested most usually during times of difficulty, challenge, trial, and tribulation. You can think of a clay pot, for example. You could put a clay pot out in the sun and it could stay at even the Phoenix sun in August. It would still stay a clay pot. The clay pot would only turn into porcelain if it's exposed to the white heat of the furnace. 
So also, beloved, it is the dynamic that when we go through the white heat of the furnace of the challenges and trials in our life, that is where our metal is tested, and that is where our precious metals are refined, and that is what is going on here when God is testing Abraham. But then look at verse 5. Verse 5, Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey, and I and the lad will go yonder, and we will worship and return to you. So in verses 2 through 4, Abraham was obedient to what God had commanded him to do. And he took Isaac, he took some young men with him, he took some wood, and he basically made the journey, the very difficult journey, to Mount Moriah to do what God had commanded him to do. And at the foot of the mountain, he tells the young men to stay there. But notice what he says. He says... I and the young lad will return to you. So the point here is, all the way back in Genesis 22, even though we know that Abraham was definitely a work in process, we see examples of tremendous feats of tremendous faith. We also see failures and sin on the part of Abraham. He is trusting the Lord. And he might not know exactly or precisely how or in what shape or when, but he has faith and he believes what he tells the men that even though he's going to go and in his mind take his son's life as God had commanded him, he has confidence that he will return to him. Well, that is what he does there. And then he takes Isaac up and then he bounds, binds Isaac, ties him up, lays him on the altar and is ready to do what God had told him to do. And by the way, one thing that we want to make sure we understand here. Isaac wasn't a little toddler. He wasn't a young child. He was probably at least 17 or 18. Some pastors and commentators think he might have been as much as 25 or 30 years of age. So he was of age enough that he could have fought back, or at a minimum, he could have fled, especially considering that his father Abraham, if he was 20, Abraham would have been 120. And even though this was the patriarchal times where Abraham still lived to be 175 years of age, you get the idea. So even in this context here, we see the faith of the father at some level being passed on to the faith to the son because Isaac allowed himself to be bound. But what takes place there is in verse 12, God intercepts Abram, Abraham, of course, and he says, do not stretch out your hand against the lad and do nothing to him. For now I know that you fear God since you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. Beloved, this is God commending Abraham. He does this elsewhere. Hebrews, in Hebrews 11, when we get to the great chapter of the hall of faith, when God is describing Abraham and his faith, the author of Hebrews in Hebrews 11, 17, and 19 gives us this divine commentary on Genesis 22, similar to the divine commentary we're getting here in chapter 6. By faith, Abraham... When he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises was offering up his only begotten son. It was he to whom it was said, in Isaac your descendants shall be called. He considered that God, watch this, he considered that God is able to raise men even from the dead from which he also received him back as a type. So whether it was Abraham telling the young men before he went up there that he and Isaac would return or Paul's, excuse me, the author of Hebrews' commentary on this here, Abraham believed God. But beloved, having said that, don't somehow think that that journey was a piece of cake. Don't think that it was easy for Abraham to go up on that mountain with the intent to do what God had told him to do, to take the life of his son. It's, 
interesting, when we look at Genesis 22, when we look at the writing of Moses, we're never told once by Moses in Genesis how Abraham feels. We're simply told what he does. And, but we have the blessing of having God's commentary from Hebrews and God's commentary from Romans and elsewhere on the heart of Abraham behind it. But then here in Genesis 22, after God stayed his hand, in verse 13, Abraham raised his eyes and looked. And behold, behind him a ram caught in the thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered him up for a burnt offering, watch this, in the place of his son. And Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide, Yahweh Jireh, as it is said, or Yahweh Jireh, as it is said to this day, in the mount of the Lord it will be provided. So what's amazing is there we see that this was a substitution on behalf of one, one son. As we would continue to go through the Old Testament, we would come to Exodus 12 with the Passover lamb, where we now meet the substitution on behalf of a family. And then we come to Leviticus 16 on the great day of atonement, the one day of the year where the Levitical high priest would go and he would offer up a sacrifice on behalf of a nation. So all of this, the substitution in the case of one on Mount Moriah, the substitution on behalf of a family in Leviticus 16, the substitution on behalf of a nation are all pointing towards the Lamb of God that would take away the sin of the world, the substitution on behalf of the world, of Jews and Gentiles, of men and women, of young and old that would have Christ be their substitute. This is all part of the jewels of the gospel that are found in Revelation, or excuse me, in Genesis 22. But now, in verse 15 and forward, this is where we get into the quotation that the author of Hebrews brings out. Then the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven. The angel of the Lord, this would be a pre-incarnate appearance of the second member of the Trinity. This is God himself calling out to Abraham. Verse 16, by myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this thing and have not withheld your son, your only son, Verse 17, indeed, I will greatly bless you and I will greatly multiply your seed as the stars of the heavens and as the sand which is on the seashore and your seed shall possess the gate of their enemies. And what's amazing is just the continuity of God's promises. Back when God called Abram out of Ur, there were three primary elements of his promised blessing in Genesis 12. A blessing, a seed or descendants, and land. And we see all three elements represented here in verse 17. I will greatly bless you. I will greatly multiply your seed as the stars of the heaven. And then finally, and your seed shall possess the gate of their enemies. So blessing, seed, and land. And then in verse 18, God also brings in the blessing of the nations, which was also part of God's original promise to Abraham. Verse 18, and in your seed, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. All of the nations of the earth shall be blessed. And look at what it says at the end of verse 18, because you have obeyed my voice. Beloved, again, it is beautiful, divine sovereignty and human responsibility. When we look at God's promises to Abraham, the Abrahamic covenant is unilateral. 
It is unconditional in some sense. God says, I will, I will, I will. Um, what he does in his promises to David in the Davidic covenant, his promise, his covenant promises to Noah in the priestly covenant, in the new covenant, God says, I will, I will, I will. Divine sovereignty. And at the same time, there's a human responsibility element because you have obeyed my voice. Also note this, this reaffirmation of God's promise to Abraham, which, by the way, in Genesis 22, this is God's last spoken word to Abraham. This reaffirmation of the promise with an oath took place after the trial of Abraham's faith, after the testing of Abraham's faith. The oath, God's oath, God's adding an oath to his already spoken word is in response to Abraham's faith, not his doubt. It's a token, it's a measure of God's good pleasure in his son. And this is kind of the same dynamic that James, the half-brother of Jesus, when he wrote his epistle in James 2 verse 21, when James was bringing out the complete difference and distinction between a mere, mere professed faith, which is not truly a possessed faith, versus a true possessed faith, which is demonstrated by good works. James 2.21, James asked, was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up Isaac, his son, on the altar? Now, James had the same soteriology. He had the same gospel understanding as God and Moses and Jesus and Paul, that man is justified by faith alone apart from works of the law. But what he's bringing out here is that Abraham's faith was tested and proven and demonstrated to be true by his willingness to sacrifice that which was most precious to him. But back in Hebrews verse 6, it is the promise of God promise. It's interesting, the word promise appears 14 times in Hebrews. Three times even in our passage here, verse 12, verse 15, and verse 17. And I'm dating myself a little bit with this reference, but I remember when my beloved Marge and I were first married, one of the avant-garde fads of the day for professing evangelical kind of frothy Christianity was promise keepers. And there are some good elements of promise keepers and there are some frothy, goofy kind of elements. But bottom line is there are no promise keepers. No, not one. There's one promise keeper. Now, to be sure, God commands us to hold fast. God commands us to hold fast even to our confession. But God is ultimately the one that holds on and keeps the promises he makes. And in fact, it's interesting, the word promise, this Greek word for promise, was used by extra-biblical writers to talk about men making promises to other men, and even men making promises to God's plural. But in Scripture, God reserves only God himself making a promise to man with the use of this word here. He is our promise keeper. And beloved, with the word of God, with the promise of God, there is great hope. And that hope is powerful. It makes me think of Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress when Christian and Hopeful uh, were trapped in Doubting Castle. And they were being tortured by the giant despair all week long. And then finally on a Lord's Day morning, Christian remembered after suffering days of torture at the giant despair, he remembered that in his bosom, in his pocket, he had a key called Hope. And that key called Hope could open any door 
in Doubting Castle. Christian pulled out the key, slid it in, and opened the dungeon door, and Christian Hopeful came out. Beloved, hope is powerful, the steadfast anchor of your soul. And Abraham here is provided as an example for you and I to imitate as one who, according to verse 12, inherited the promise by faith and patience. And so we move from the historical illustration to the supernatural exposition, the divine exposition. Um, if you have a, a red ink Bible, actually my, my Bible, my New American Standard has red ink, which means in the gospel accounts, they put the spoken words of Jesus in red ink, which is okay and it can, can be handy. But many people kind of misunderstand and think, well, somehow the red ink is more important than the black ink. No, it doesn't matter if it's red, black, or if it was written in green. It's the word of God, every jot and tittle. One of the dimensions, one of the powers of the black ink is you can kind of at times think of the black ink as God's divine commentary on the reaction to the red ink. So in the same way at some level, what we have here in verses 15 through 17, this is God's divine exposition, a supernatural exposition, little mini sermon of Genesis 22. Verse 15 here, Hebrews 6, the author continues, and thus, having patiently waited, he, Abraham, obtained the promise. He patiently waited. Well, what was he waiting upon? We know when we are first introduced to Terah, Abram's father, and then Abraham himself in Genesis 11, verse 30, before we even get into chapter 12 and God calling Abraham out of Ur, God lays the foundation of what would be the springboard of God's dealings with Abraham. Genesis eleven thirty, 30, Sarai was barren. She had no child. Chapter 12, verse 4, Genesis. Abram went forth as the Lord had spoken to him, and Lot went with him. Now Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. So the point here is he was a 75-year-old man, and his wife's womb was barren, and they did not have children. Things weren't looking good for them. Again, it was patriarchal times where people were still living a little longer than we live today, but things aren't looking very good. And God appeared to Abram again in Shechem in Genesis 12, verses 6 and 7. And God promised that he would give Abram the land and that his seeds would also be giving the land. God repeated the promise when Abram and Lot separated from each other. In Genesis chapter 14, remember, they went and looked on the promised land. And Abram, yeah, he was still Abram at that point. Abram told Lot his his nephew Lot, go ahead, you pick where you want to go, and I will go, I'll, you take your herds there, and I'll take my herds elsewhere. And Lot, though he was a believer, was immature. He was basically operating and walking by sight, whereas Abraham, at that point, was operating and walking by faith. And they separated, and at that point, God reaffirmed again that he would give him this great number of descendants and this land. Some years later, as time goes on, Abraham was taking stock of his situation. Maybe he was saying to Sarah, look, you know, we need one to start and we don't even have one. So Abraham thought that he wanted to make Eleazar of Damascus his heir. But even then, God came back to him and told him again that his descendants would be as numerous as the stars in the sky. Genesis 15, verse Five. When Abraham was 86 years 
of age. So 11 years after the initial promise, his wife Sarah had the bright idea to give Abraham her Egyptian maidservant Hagar. And from Hagar, Abraham had a son born named Ishmael. But God again told him in chapter 16 and then chapter 17 that Isaac who is not yet born, that he would have a son from Sarah as God had promised them and Isaac would be the son of the child of the covenant of promise. And when we finally come to Genesis 22, Abraham's 100 and Sarah's 90. All that to say, beloved, dear friend, who do you think opens and closes wombs? Who is sovereign over fertilization, conception, procreation, and gestation? God is. And that's why in Genesis 21, verses 1 and 2, and I love how he centers here on Sarah. Then the Lord took note of Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did for Sarah as he had promised. So Sarah conceived and bore a son to Abraham in his old age at the appointed time of which God had spoken to him. And in verse 5 of the same chapter, Genesis 21, 5, Abraham was 100 years old when his son Isaac was born to him. So for 25 years, according to the commentary from the author of Hebrews, he waited patiently. Now, again, we've already seen examples that I rehearsed some of them, that it wasn't a perfect waiting patiently. There was sin, there was frailty, and there was folly, but In the summary, in the main, he didn't waver in unbelief. Turn for a moment to Romans chapter 4. Let's look at God's commentary on Abraham through the pen of the Apostle Paul. Romans 4, we'll pick it up in verse 17. As it is written, a father of many nations have I made you. In the sight of him whom he believed, even God who gives life to the dead and calls into being that which does not exist. In hope against hope, he believed in order that he might become a father of many nations according to that which had been spoken, so shall your descendant be. And without becoming weak in faith, he contemplated his own body, now as good as dead, since he was about 100 years old, and the deadness of Sarah's womb. Watch this, verse 20. Yet, with respect to the promise of God, he did not waver in unbelief, but grew strong in faith, giving glory to God. So that testing, that trial, that stirring, that pressing down tribulation strengthened his faith towards God. Back in Hebrews chapter 6. So, The author goes in his exposition from God's goodness and Abraham's response to just the general understanding of the dynamic of oaths. Hebrews 6.16, for men swear by one greater than themselves and with them an oath given as confirmation is an end of every dispute. So this is common practice in humanity. Even today in the year 2022, in the year of our Lord 2022, when you go into a courtroom, and I checked this with my brother, elder, uh, lawyer, brother, Scott, mom, said that even today you'll have to take an oath where you say, I promise to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, so help me God. Because men understand the Weight and importance of an oath. Now, as much as, and I think in our courtrooms, people maybe lie every now and then, and probably way more often than not, whatever the case may be. But in ancient times, even in our time, in our, in our culture, 100, 150 years ago, people would purchase land with a handshake. 
And in a culture like the Hebrew believers here to whom the author's writing, and in the case of Abraham, an oath was binding. It was massively important. Yet people understood even then the frailty and the untrustworthiness of fellow man so they would make an oath and swear by someone greater than themselves. But in the case of God, of course, there is no one greater than himself, so he swears by himself. And we've seen this. You may remember or think of other places in the Old Testament where God will make a statement and say, as I live, and then the statement, where basically God is swearing by himself. For example, Numbers 14, verse 21, as I live, God says, all the earth will be filled with the glory of the Lord. Or Deuteronomy 32, verse 40, I lift up my hand to heaven and say, as I live forever. So God makes an oath by virtue of himself. Back here in verse 17, Hebrews 6, in the same way, so he moves from the human illustration to the incredible dynamic of God adding an oath to the promise and word that he'd already given to Abraham. In the same way, God desiring even more to show to the heirs of the promise, the heirs, that includes the Jewish Christians to whom the author is writing, and that includes you and me, to show to the heirs of the promise the unchangeableness of his purpose, the immutability, if you want a $24 or $64 theological word, the unchangeableness, the immutability of his purpose interposed with an oath. Beloved, we understand, we should understand the bare word of God is utterly certain. Whatever he does is right, whatever God does is right, whatever he says is true. But what we have here is God condescended to man in the case of Abraham and his ethnic children and his spiritual children and employed an oath. This oath that God made with Abraham didn't make his word or his promise any truer. But from man's viewpoint and from our viewpoint and for our benefit, it becomes more emphatic. And while we're finishing out this middle section of exposition, I want to center a little bit more on the patiently waiting, the patience that the author cites in the case of Abraham. This steadfast adherence in spite of difficulties and challenges. This kind of patience that he's talking about here is perseverance. It's endurance, fortitude, staying power. And it's interesting, a recurring theme in the general epistles, in the non-Pauline epistles, is patience, suffering, and endurance. Most of the recipients of the non-Pauline epistles, of the general epistles, were undergoing suffering and trials. And this precious group of Jewish Christians certainly falls in that category. And beloved, again, our faith, my faith, your faith. Faith is strengthened by trials, producing a deeper, stronger faith, a purged and purified faith. And what this would encourage us to do is to not view the trials and the disappointments and the challenges and the difficulties for what they are, rather more so view them for what they can become. In other words, what God can do with them and use them to sharpen and shape and strengthen you and your faith and to be a blessing for others. That's why the Apostle Paul, Romans 5.3, said, we exult in our tribulations, knowing that, and he doesn't exult because he's a you know, pain monger or he's a, a 
masochist. Had to, anyway, not, none of that. He gives a reason. We exult in our tribulations knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance. And perseverance, proven character, and proven character, hope. The hope that is the anchor of your soul, the hope that is the anchor of my soul. So he moved from the historical illustration to the supernatural exposition, finally, the author makes a personal application as a good preacher, as a good pastor. Beloved, hope is the steadfast anchor of your soul. And this hope is an objective reality for you to seize and a subjective reality for you to experience. It's an objective reality, regardless of your or my grasp or understanding of it. It is true because God said it, that settles it. And by way of amazing condescension, he even interposed an oath on top of it. So it's an objective reality, but that's the divine sovereignty part. Our responsibility is to seize it, to lay hold of it, to grasp to it, to cling on to it. And it's a subjective reality that we experience. It's power and it's encouragement and it's Blessing. Verse 18, he opens up with a purpose statement. In order that, Hina, purpose statement, by two unchangeable things, two unchangeable things. What's amazing is God always operates in line with his will. God doesn't, can't, whatever language you want to use, God doesn't, can't make a rock too heavy for himself to lift. Because God doesn't operate outside of his character. He's not a God of chaos and disorder. I love what Scott Mom said in one of our Thursday morning men's Bible studies when he gets the question from people, oh, well, we don't want to put God in a box. And his response is, well, okay, but we also want to keep God in the pages of Scripture. And so what God is doing here is this principle that he laid out in the Old Testament, which threads all the way through the New Testament, the principle of two witnesses which he gives primarily for men. That's why even though people take oaths that you have two witnesses, they were sent out by twos in the New Testament. Christ sent them out. Church discipline, uh, second step, you take two or three witnesses to witness the calling to repentance. God himself here gives two witnesses, two unchangeable, immutable witnesses, his character and his word, his promise and his oath. Continuing on, verse 18, in which it is impossible for God to lie. We may have strong encouragement in order that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, that we may have strong encouragement. This word impossible, adunitas, uh, no inability whatsoever, utterly impossible. It appears four times in Hebrews. Earlier in chapter 6, verses 4 through 8, the author used this word to bring out the utter impossibility of ultimate final apostasy of a true Believer. It's also used in chapter 10, verse 4. It's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. Chapter 11, verse 6. Without faith, it's impossible to please him. Here, it is impossible for God to lie. God, beloved, dear God, dear friend, is not a man that he should lie. Numbers 23, verse 19. God's not a man that he should lie, nor a son of man that he should repent. Has he said and will he not do it? Or has he spoken and will he not make it good? Or the Apostle Paul, when he's writing to Titus, Titus 1 verse 2, Paul said, In the hope of eternal life, which God, who cannot lie, 
promised long ages ago, literally promised before time began. <laughs> Beloved, God cannot lie. And what the author is saying here, again, is the bare promise of God is sufficient to command belief. But God confirms his promise with an oath. And as such, he encourages you and me, our, his children, to believe him and his oath as the very ground of our strong encouragement in our faith. And that's the strong encouragement that we see right here in verse 18. Beloved, this means at times in our frailty, when we're tempted to run around looking for something else besides the Bible, when we're looking at some notion, some elaborate, some mystical word, the way Alistair Begg says, some exciting accretion. No, back to the word of God, to the law and to the testimonies. The prophet Isaiah, God said through the prophet Isaiah, to the law and to the testimony, to the word of God. Come, let us reason together from scripture. Isaiah 8.20, to the law and to the testimony, if they do not speak according to this word, it is because they have no Dawn. Beloved, that is the promise of God, the word of God, the oath of God. Back here, Hebrews 6, 18, he says, we, he brings himself in with his audience, as we've seen him do before, we who have fled for refuge. Now, especially this group of Jewish Christians would clearly understand what the author is appealing to was the dynamic of cities of refuge, of a city of refuge. In Old Testament Israel, God established the practice of identifying a city of refuge. And he actually specified six of them. Three east of the Jordan and three on the west side of the Jordan. And the intent there was if a man did something that unintentionally caused the death of another man, he could flee to the city of refuge and he would be a manslayer. He could flee to one of the cities of refuge and the avenger of blood couldn't come and take his life. For example, Joshua 20, verse 9, these were the appointed cities for all the sons of Israel and for the stranger who sojourns among them, so that whoever kills any person unintentionally may flee there and not die by the hand of the avenger of blood until he stands before the congregation. So that's the backdrop, that's a little mini historical illustration the author uses here in the middle of this personal application. And the point here, beloved, for that congregation, for you and me, dear church, is we are a house of refugees. We are refugees. We are the people who, for refuge to Jesus, have fled. As that great hymn, I think we sang it last Lord's Day, how firm a foundation. We who have fled for refuge, continuing on, in laying hold of the hope set before us, of grabbing onto, of seizing, of clinging to. It's the same word that was used back in chapter 4, verse 14, where the author, where God exhorts you and I to hold fast. Let us hold fast our confession. Let us hold fast. Let us lay hold of and not let go of. Let us lay hold of with a tight, as tight a grip as we can possibly have. The hope that we have, verse 19 the hope we have, this hope we have as an anchor of the soul. It just, I, I love this rich image, the anchor. Now, nautical references in scripture see 
seafaring references and illustrations are very rare. You won't find the word anchor once in the Old Testament. You'll only find the word anchor four times in the New Testament, once here and three times in Acts 27 where Luke is describing the shipwreck of Apostle Paul. Bottom line was, in the Old Testament, when you got into a boat, you were in trouble. In the New Testament, when you're in a boat, you were brave. But the anchor here, because the anchor in Acts 27 and this metaphorical anchor here provides security in the face of changing tides and rising storms. And the rougher the weather, the more necessary and needful the anchor, the more important the anchor for the stability and safety of the boat. Beloved, God's point is this, in the same way, the troubles, when the troubles and temptations of the world throw our souls around, when we are tempted to drift away from that which we held once before, we need to remember we have a sure and steadfast anchor that stabilizes our souls amidst the waves and storms and tempests of this world. It's interesting, in the catacomb tunnels under the ancient city of Rome, there's different symbols that Christians use to capture their faith. And there's three symbols that were most prevalent in early Christianity that are captured in those catacomb tunnels. There's a dove uh, representing the Holy Spirit, which the Holy Spirit descended like a dove. It wasn't in a form of a dove, but that's a side point. A fish, of course, the ichthyus, and dove, fish, and anchor. Because the anchor is the steadfast stabilizing force for our soul. And the anchor, and by the way, there's at least 66 pictures of anchors in those catacombs under Rome. But beloved, the anchor has to be commensurate with the need. You might have a a little dinghy, or maybe you've got like a 20-foot or 30-foot boat, and you've got an anchor for it. That anchor might be perfectly sufficient for that dinghy or for that 30-foot boat, that won't do an aircraft carrier much good. Beloved, the anchor needs to be commensurate with the need. So the question here is, as it's applied here, how great is the need? How great is our need? And we remember what Christ said. We want to know how great the need is. What does it profit a man or a woman to gain the whole world and lose his or her soul? So the need for the anchor is greater than the entire world. You take all the corporations, all the stock, all the gold, and the need here is infinitely greater. And our security is in the anchor, the hope we have in Christ. And notice this too, the focus is on the anchor, not the boat. So while we are exhorted here to lay hold of it, it's ultimately him holding on to us that keeps us safe and secure, not us holding on to him. Verse 19, he tells us it's a hope that's both sure and steadfast. It's incapable of being moved. It's a safeguard, unalterable, firm, firmly grounded. And I love this, middle of verse 19, one which enters within the veil. So the office is kind of a, a divinely inspired mixed metaphor, if you will. The anchor moves into within the veil. Now, Remember, all of this, ever since early chapter 4, actually all the way back chapter 2, verse 17, we've been introduced as the main theme of Jesus as the perfect, ultimate high priest. The Levitical high priest, the 
high priests in the Old Testament, they would enter into the Holy of Holies. They would pass through the veil once a year. But the high priest would enter in there and no one else could come in and he could only do it once a year. So he entered in as a representative for the people, not as a forerunner. Jesus, however, he brings us with himself. He brings us into full fellowship with God. That's why I look at the beginning of verse 20. Where Jesus has entered as a forerunner for us. And he uses, again, as he's done before, the human name Jesus, not the Son of God title that we saw, for example, back in verse 6, here in chapter 6. He uses the human name Jesus to again emphasize that it is the man in his humanity, Jesus, that entered into the very presence of God. He went through the heavens into the presence of God. Chapter 9, verse 24, the author will give us further description. Christ did not enter a holy place made with hands, a mere copy of the true one, but he entered into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. And we saw this, and we learned about this back in chapter 4, verse 14, that there is a great priesthood being exercised in heaven right now. There is worship in heaven in communion with our worship here. That we, in obedience to God with the hope we have in Christ, are worshiping behind the veil in a very real, tangible way, even right now. And then finally, at the end of verse 20, very briefly... Speaking of Christ as a high priest, having become a high priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. So the author picks up where he began back in chapter 5, verse 6, and chapter 5, 10, and 11, where he wants to tell this congregation about Melchizedek, but then you're not you, Santan, you, the original Hebrew congregation, you're dull of hearing, you're only used to milk, and so he had this long diversion, but now he's like, you know what, I'm going to tell you about it anyway. And I'm not going to elaborate here because we'll pick it up in beautiful, glorious detail next week. But one thing I will say here is, having become a high priest forever, the Levitical high priest, as we already remembered, only went into the uh, veil, behind the veil, once a year. Christ, and they would eventually die and they'd have to be replaced. Christ is a high priest forever, forever and ever. F.F. Bruce, the excellent commentator, said this. We are refugees from the sinking ship of this present world order and that is soon to disappear. Our hope is fixed in the eternal order where the promises of God are made good to his people. Beloved, in this mighty sermon out of the pages, not mine, the one in scripture, this mighty sermon in the pages of scripture were brought from the realm of hopelessness into the reality of hope. The anchor of our soul has been fastened, fixed, steadfast and sure to an immovable object. Our hope, beloved, is fixed in the unseen but very real heaven, past this world of shadows into the eternity of substance. Dear friend, you may be here this morning and Jesus is not your Lord and Savior. You're not trusting in him alone by faith alone. You may be here without hope, without faith. You may not have your anchor of your soul fastened to an immovable object. You might not be grounded in the character of God the way the author speaks of here. You may not fully understand that God is not unjust or not understand that God keeps all of his promises. Dear friend, 
All of God's promises in Scripture find their yes and their fulfillment in the Lord Jesus Christ. By virtue of his birth, by virtue of his sinless life, by virtue of his death, by virtue of his resurrection from the grave and his victory over sin and death and his ascension into behind the veil into the very presence of God where he is seated at the right hand of God the Father because his work is finished. And through all of this he achieved a decisive and eternal victory for anyone that would look to him and ask for forgiveness, ask to be adopted into his family. And beloved, what an encouragement for us to be reminded that we need not drift along in the uncertainty of the tide. We have this hope which is fixed as an anchor of our soul. It's firm, it's secure, and it's fastened to a rock that cannot move. Therefore, may we be aroused out of our sluggishness into a diligent faith and a patient endurance modeled even by our father Abraham. Please join me, beloved, as we go to the Lord in prayer. Lord God, we praise you and thank you, Lord. We thank you for your grace and for your mercy. We thank you, Lord Jesus, for the work that you accomplished at the cross, for your present high priestly ministry interceding for us in heaven. Thank you for the sublime, amazing truth that even now as frail human beings, we are worshiping behind the veil by virtue of our union with you. And it is for your glory and for your honor, Lord Jesus, that we lay all of this at the foot of the cross. And Lord God, we pray for that any that are here that are not trusting in you, Lord, put life into their heart where there was no life before. Draw them to yourself. Let them fall on their knees figuratively or literally before you. And make them a new creature in Christ Jesus where old things have passed away and the glorious truth that new things will come eternal things. It is for your glory and for your honor, Lord Jesus, that we pray and that we sing. Amen.